You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Today's guests, we have two of them, two excellent guests. First up, Steve Kornacki. He is the NBC News and MSNBC national political correspondent. You may ask, why is he on this podcast? Well, as if you're an NFL fan, you have seen Steve Kornacki on Football Night in America. And as we tape this, in a couple of days, he will be on NBC's Kentucky Derby coverage as an insight analyst for their coverage of that famed race. Um which is pretty cool. Interesting uh, move for NBC Sports. Uh, In our podcast, Steve discussed how he has landed these sports assignments, um, how he felt his Football Night in America experience went, um, whether a knowledge of sports, uh, he's a big sports fan, has helped sort of with um, his work on politics and elections. We get into the fact that there, you know, is he conscious that some viewers automatically will not want him on a sports broadcast because he has um, a connection to political reporting. And then we finish up with the uh, the tribute videos Leslie Jones has uh, made for Steve Kornacki, which are pretty hilarious. He's followed by Tashawn Reed, who's one of my excellent colleagues at The Athletic. He covers the Raiders, who are a really, really fascinating team. And that is a fascinating beat. So Tashawn discusses what it's like covering an NFL team in Las Vegas, um, challenges of covering the NFL draft amid COVID. Tashawn lost some members of his family uh, last year with COVID while he was working, and he discusses sort of the uh, the emotional toll of that, um, what he expects the Raiders to do in the draft, his piece on Raiders owner Mark Davis and the Raiders social media feed, uh, where Mark Davis and um, Tashawn had a long discussion about that. That was a pretty interesting conversation. And so, uh, again, he has one of the more interesting uh, beats, in my opinion, in the NFL. So Steve Kornacki to start, Tashawn Reed to finish, coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, uh, Steve Kornacki is an NBC News and MSNBC national political correspondent. For the purposes of this podcast, he is also an insight analyst for NBC's upcoming coverage of the Kentucky Derby. Although if you hear this after Saturday, it will be, uh, you will know what has happened. Uh, and Steve, of course, if you're a football fan, you saw him analyze NFL games, playoff probabilities for football night in America. We don't often uh, go outside sports media staffers for this podcast. But Steve Kornacki, you have joined in at least tangentially the sports media. So welcome to the sports media podcast. Well, thanks. I'm happy to be here and, and excited to uh, to be doing this. Yeah, well, I appreciate you slumming with so many less uh, listeners, Steve. It's very kind of you to, uh, <laughs> to do that today. Um, how um, And please feel free to go as long as you want, but how did you initially get integrated with the sports group? I, I covered when the release came down that NBC was going to use you on Football Night in America, but that's obviously something that had to have happened internally so what was the process to ultimately get you on that show yeah um well it 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 wasn't anything that had been on my radar um you know and it was i'm gonna say a week after the election last year uh you know so middle of november um and i got a call from my boss um 
on the news side, just saying that the, the sports people had reached out and, um, you know, wanted to talk to me about potentially doing something, you know, with, uh, with football night in America. And, uh, I was like, wow, really? Uh, <laughs> so, you know, he said, would you be interested? I said, no, I think, I think I would be, um, you know, so, you know, in a couple of days later, they, they, you know, connected us, um, you know, all on a call, um, uh, you know, started talking about it. I think my, my, um, you know, my concern going in was, I, I guess I would put it this way. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan. I've, um, you know, I'm an NFL fan. I'm a football fan. Obviously I've been watching Sunday night football since it started, uh, the NBC version of it. Um, you know, so I, I, I know it as a viewer, I know it as a fan. Uh, so from that standpoint, it was, you know, I was, you know, tickled to, to get the chance. Um, my concern was just, you know, I want to make sure coming off the election and, um, you know, it, it wasn't a gimmicky and, and it wasn't just, oh, here's, you know, something with the board and something with football. And, you know, um, and, and I think what we started talking about right away was the idea of, you know, at that point in the season, you're well into the season, um, you know, playoff races taking shape, uh, use the board to break down the playoff race uh, in each conference. And um, when we started looking at that, started building the graphics, started thinking about the hits, it, it really struck me that it, it actually seemed like a logical extension of what I'd been doing in the run up to the election, you know, because so much of what I was doing in uh, September, October, you know, right up until the morning of the election was here's your road to 270 map. You know, OK, let's say Biden wins Pennsylvania. Let's say Trump gets Wisconsin. Yeah. How, the different scenarios involved, how they change the math how they change the probability for each candidate winning. I mean, that was essentially what we were doing with the playoff race. You know, what if the Ravens win today? What if the Dolphins lose? Um, so it really just, it, it, when I started to look at these segments, I said, okay, this doesn't feel gimmicky to me. This feels, um, this feels actually, it's two different worlds, but it feels very similar to what I've been doing. Um, and so that gave me a little bit of confidence, I think, that it could work. One of the things that's clear when it comes to your political work is that, you know, you're facile with this stuff. Um, you have a long history in it. Uh, the numbers, particularly when it comes to sort of uh, uh, the electoral map, or even as you get very, very specific within within different counties of different states, um, that's something that I, I think comes fairly easy to you. And then you obviously have a lot of television experience. But when it when it came to the NFL and it, when it came to playoff possibilities, I know that you're a longtime sports fan. But did you feel? comfortable talking about it on television because you know you don't have 20 years of of uh experience in sports television you have it elsewhere right uh, you know and that was I, I think what helped here you know from my standpoint is you, you know i didn't the experience of working with the sports team and and i mean if you go to nbc sports in stanford i'd never been there you know before uh uh before uh, november when i when i uh, went for the first uh, the first show um, I, I had none of that experience. And so, yeah, obviously that gives me a little bit of, um, you know, a little bit of apprehension, but it, it just, it helped a lot. It really did. I think, um, just that I'd absorbed this as a fan, you know, my whole life. Um, you know, so I've, I've, I've just followed, you know, I mean, I can remember, you know, as a, as a kid following, I'm, I'm from, you know, Massachusetts. So the Patriots were, were the team. And of course, a lot of years in my childhood, they were nowhere near the, uh, the playoff race, but there were, I do remember, you know, 1994 when things started to turn around and, uh, you know, I mean, I, I following the playoff race obsessively, um, you know, are they in this week? Are they in this week? You know, okay. The Colts have to lose. They have to. So, I, I mean, I've just been, 
Um, it's been part of my experience, whether it's, you know, with the Patriots or just in general, kind of following the NFL. Um, it's, it's a facet of it. I've always, you know, just followed as a fan. So it did, it, it wasn't like learning a new language. One of the, um, things that, um, uh, for me that, um, has always been interesting, obviously somebody covers sports media is the importance of having a, a really good debut broadcast. And while that's probably not probably, well, while that's in fact unfair, the reality is if you look particularly at very high profile positions, Steve, in sports media, if someone has a very good first week, let's say as Tony Romo did, there's really like a massive carryover um, heading forward. If the converse happens, which I think is fair to say that happened to Jason Witten on Monday Night Football, you sort of get tagged um, reputationally right or wrong, and that carries you a little bit. One of the things that happened for you in Football Night in America was the press that you received, um, sort of the critical acclaim that you received was off the charts. I mean, you were trending on social media. You had a lot of uh, sports fans or maybe sort of quote-unquote celebrity sports fans who really liked what you did. Um, It could not have gone better for you. And I think, you know, very clearly NBC Sports saw, saw an opportunity and decided to continue with you. Um, like, how aware were you, at least on that first night, that things were going well? Because in hindsight, honestly, they probably could not have gone better for someone who was in that position for the first time. Um, well, I mean, for, thank you. That's I appreciate hearing that. And, and um, I mean, the answer is, I guess, um, not not too aware. I'm, I'm usually, and this is just true, and no matter what I'm doing, this is true, you know, on election night, this is true on, on a random hit during the week on the news side. This is just in general. Um, uh, uh, I'm always, you know, mildly terrified that something bad slash career killing is going to happen, um, when I go on air. So there's, there's, there's always those jitters. Um, I, oh yeah, you're, you're, you're a professional television person. That's very normal. Yeah. There's, breeds paranoia. there's the, the massive insecurity that comes with that, I guess. Um, so, you know, there's, there's that, um, I felt it, you know, that, that's why I was so worried going into it. So uh, if worried is the right word um, about it, not seeming gimmicky, um, because, again, I just I, I've seen in television in general, I've seen it, it, it feels there's an instinct sometimes to, you know, I, I know I was getting some buzz because of the election. And, you know, sometimes there's an instinct to take something that, that maybe is getting a little buzz and just, you know, expose it somewhere else and and assume it's going to work and then not have a plan. Um, so that's, that was why, again, I was, I, 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 it, it helped so much in the, the weeks before we, uh, we did those segments that I really felt we had something that was going to work. Um, so then my, my, my sort of jitters that day, that night were just more about my own ability, not to, not to freeze, not to, you know, uh, to deliver it the way I knew I was capable of delivering it because I felt confident in the material we had. Um, and I got, you know, I got positive um, you know, people that have all been great to me and I got positive feedback after, honestly, I, 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 I appreciate the way you're, you're framing it now. I didn't, I, I hadn't heard anything on that level, but I'll certainly take it. What is M- We'll get to the Derby in a, in a, in a couple of minutes. What has, um, what has NBC sports said about you, um, heading back to football night in America and doing something similar for the 2021 season? Yeah, no, I mean, we've, we've talked about, um, you know, potentially, you know, doing more of it. Um, you know, I, I, I think, the idea has kind of been to, to do the same, you know, where you pick up later in the season, it's a playoff race. Obviously you're not going to be talking about that week one. Um, you know, so we've looked into, um, um, you know, I think doing that again. And, and as I say, the Kentucky Derby, 
Uh, I'm a big, uh, a big horse racing fan. So thrilled to get a chance to do this. And, and uh, yeah, I think we've had some, uh, some kind of conversations just, uh, you know, Hey, what else can we do here? And, and let's keep talking and let's, uh, let's figure some things out. Before we lead into the Derby, um, you know, I did enough reading on you prior to you coming on that I, I know that sports has been um, a big part of your life. Um, you know, you've said that you were an ESPN uh, addict as far back as elementary school. You talked about your uh, growing up with the Patriots. I mean, it's been a nice run for you now. But, you know, if you're going back to the Steve Grogan days, you know, you've, you've experienced a lot then as a as a sports fan. And having people on this podcast before who have mixed and marinated um, in the political world and sports. Chelsea Janes, not too long ago, was a podcast guest of mine. She covered the uh, Kamala Harris campaign for the Washington Post and then has now switched back to being a national baseball writer. Um, She believed that like having experiences in sports, particularly beat reporting, really helped her. So I want to sort of ask you sort of a similar question but on the reverse, um, have you found that trafficking in politics and trafficking in the data of politics, did you find that that helped you when you ultimately got this sports uh, on-air sports assignment? Um, yeah, again, I, th- I think the answer is yes, because um, what I realized, um, you know, when we started putting the, the, the Football Night in America hits together, the playoff chase was just how much of the, the style um, – how much overlap there was just almost stylistically in terms of how I was going to deliver the information, um, how similar what I was doing with the playoff probabilities was to what I had been doing, um, you know, with elections, with polling, with road to 270, with all that stuff. And that's something I've kind of developed um, the, the um, election data, you know, thing I do, um, you know, I've been doing uh, since 2014. That was the first, um, that was the first midterm I got to play that role for. So 14, 16, 18, 20, you know, four big election cycles, plus a bunch of special elections in between, you know, the run up to every election, um, primary campaigns. I mean, I, I've been doing this pretty heavily for, for years now. And I think, um, you know, it's something, it, there's a style, there's an approach that, that I, I, it's just through repetition that I've developed. Um, and, and to, to discover that a lot of that, I think was, was exportable to something else. Um, again, I just talk about stage fright, anxiety, these sorts of things. Um, the, the best, you know, antidote to that is, um, is to have some confidence. And it, I, I had some confidence that it could work just, um, once I saw how similar it was to what I've been doing. I've had, um, I've had long talks with friends who are professional wrestling fans. And I think we agree that if you understand professional wrestling, and I'm not trying to be flippant here, like you can understand politics, the art of doing promos, the art of storylines, someone who one day is a heel, someone who one day is a babyface. So I don't mean to be flippant when I ask you that, do you see similarities between um, between sports and politics, and particularly maybe in when coverage gets to be too horse racing coverage, uh, the way things are covered, where someone is the winner, of, you know, forget about elections, but someone is sort of, quote unquote, the winner of the day, someone is the loser of the day, or is that, I don't know, or is that sort of being a little bit too um, loose on something that is obviously very different than the other? Yeah, it's interesting because I, I think there's a lot of, um, there are a lot of, you know, parallels to, you know, between sports and politics, between how sports is covered and how politics sometimes is covered. Um, and I think there's a tendency a lot of times to, to try to, 
um, to try to mix and match the two. Um, I, I'm remembering early in my uh, political journalism career, I'm you know, going back 10, 15 years here, um, you know, I was covering state politics in New Jersey. And I can remember there was a, a governor's race. This would have, uh, would have been 2005, so even more than 15 years ago. Um, and I had an instinct, um, you know, kind of coming out of being you know, a sports fan and thinking about how sports is covered. I had an instinct to try to um, match it with the governor's race. And, and the idea would be what you're saying um, to, to write sort of a feature every week, um, you know, that, that wraps up the week and basically decides who won the week. Right. Who won the week in the in the campaign, media coverage, events, you know, whatever. And I quickly realized, I said, you know what, this isn't going to work because, you know, unlike, you know, a baseball game where, you know, you just, OK, you got two runs this inning, three runs that you, know, you add them up at the end and whoever has the most runs wins. Um, you could win every week in the campaign, you know, and then blow it in the last week. Or you could win every week in the campaign and even win the last week in the campaign, but there are just structural factors that are going to keep you from, you know, you're still going to lose by 20 points. There's just, there are other elements to it um, in politics where I think that, that kind of blow up the comparison. So I realized that back then, and I've, I've shied away from, um, I think, I think that idea of the winner of the day, the winner, who won the day, who won the week. Um, that's a thing I've tried to shy away from. Um, I, I do kind of like, I know, you know, when people use the word or the term uh, uh, horse race journalism, um, you know, it's kind of pejorative and, and, and there's certainly a lot of negative connotations there. I kind of, to be honest, I embrace it, though, um, in that I do think there is an aspect to politics and elections, certainly in particular, where, you know, people, whatever side you're on, whoever you're for, whatever, you know, political party you're with, um, they're all asking the same question on some level. And that is, you know, who's winning? Who's winning, who's losing and why and, and, and what could change it? You know, what could what could blow it for my candidate? What could get my candidate back into it? Why aren't people rallying behind my candidate? You know, things like that. And I, I do think um, um, there's a role there um, that I try to, you know, that I try to play to get at those questions, to, to, to look at what the data is telling us about those questions. Um, and to be honest, too, about the limitations of the data, you know, as well. And I think certainly that's obviously been something in our um, in, in, in our uh, politics the last couple of years with, with polling and the presidential race, certainly, um, that we've had to be aware of, too. I appreciate that answer. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, let's talk about the Derby. Um, have you ever been to the Kentucky Derby uh, as a fan? Never been. This is going to be my first trip. Wow. Having been there, um, uh, I'm glad you're getting that opportunity because it's really an incredible um it's an incredible slice of um, sporting Americana. Will you? Uh, will you? Will you be able to? Um, prior to whatever you end up doing on Saturday, like get a feel for the grounds, uh, sort of to get a feel. I, I realize it's going to be a little less pageantry, given that the um, the attendance is probably going to be in half or forty uh, percent. But like, will you, will you have time to sort of embrace what makes the Derby the Derby? Yeah, I, I'll find out when I get there, I guess, because I've, I've never been through the, the ritual from this from the standpoint of, of working as part of the broadcast. So I'm hoping 
that that's the case. There are a lot of things I'd love to see, just, you know, take a little time to kind of walk around and, and, and soak it in like that. Um, yeah, it's going to be, it's limited attendance, but I, I, you know, I think it's still going to add up to about 50,000 people. So that's, yeah. I mean, that'll be the biggest thing I've been at in a while. <laughs> we, now, NBC has um, historically had handicappers on its coverage, and Eddie Olchuk, uh, who has had a very interesting career flipping between um, being an NHL player and then being an NHL analyst and now getting into handicapping as a someone who loved horse racing for a long time. Um, so you have to, for your insight, Steve, you have to figure out a way to provide value for the broadcast, provide value for the viewer, but also obviously not doing the straight handicapping that the traditional horse racing handicapper will do. So what can viewers expect from your role in this production? Right. Well, I mean, and by the way, I've got, actually, I do, I think, potentially provide like the ultimate edge to, to, to betters who are trying to, you know, figure out the Derby or any other race. It's, it's a pretty good method. You take whatever horse I'm betting on and don't bet it. And I think that'll right. give you, give you a pretty good advantage. It's a wise, wise, wise old adage, Steve, for all of us. Correct. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think again, this is where I, I, I'm looking at this and I see some parallels to, um, well, I was just, I was just defending horse race journalism in the, in the political context. Now we, we get to do horse race journalism in the horse racing context. So it almost, again, I think kind of flows naturally. It's to, to me, it's to look at the, especially when it comes to the Derby itself not as much the undercard races, but the Derby itself, um, to look at all the patterns, all the trends, um, to look at, uh, to put data together from the history of this race, um, to, to put in context, this 20 horse field, you know, how have the favorites done, you know, and I think there's an interesting story there because, um, you know, when I was kind of growing up and, and getting into horse racing, uh, favorites lost every year at the Kentucky Derby. They went two decades, not a single favorite came in. Now, suddenly, We've had 10 favorites win um, in, in just the last 20 years. So there's been a change there. There's been a change, you know, look at the, um, you know, the pace of the race. If you want to get into like um, how these races are run um, again, I can remember a bunch of, uh, a bunch of derbies, um, you know, from the past, you know, some of the derbies that really got me into it, where you had these, these deep closers, right. Horses that kind of came from way in the back of the pack. And suddenly you look up in the home stretch of the race and they're, they're charging, you know, to the lead and they win, you know, 25 to one, something like that. Um, but look more recently, really in the last, I'd say since 2013, um, you know, when they instituted this, this point system to qualify for the Derby, um, basically I put it this way, every horse that has crossed the finish line first, since they instituted the point system has been within, I believe it's four lengths of the lead in the, in the first half mile of the race. I say cross the finish line first, cause he had that weird one in 2019 when, um, maximum security came in first and then got DQ'd. But, um, but I mean, it's this, you know, th these horses go to the front now and they stay there. And that, that wasn't really the case consistently. That's been the case pretty consistently here for almost a decade. Hadn't been before. So I think it's the I, looking, that's kind of, I'm giving you a sense here of where my mind is, um, you know, favorites, pace of the race, where the, where the horses come from, you know, you've got these, these derby prep races being run, you know, this winter, this spring around the country, which ones have the best history of uh, recently of, of, of turning out the winner. I mean, that would be the Santa Anita Derby, you know, which have the worst history recently on the Wood Memorial in New York is a, has been pretty much a dud. Um, so I think it's, it's trying to, you know, um, recognize that there's an audience for this event that is larger, obviously, than any other you know, horse race for the year. It's filled with people who in many cases probably watch one horse race a year that are looking at this screen of 20 horses. Um, and are trying to make sense of, you know, how can I sift through these? 
And so I'm going to try to use data to help people uh, uh, maybe identify a nugget or two that, that'll, uh, that'll help them you know, put their, uh, their $2 bet in or maybe a little bit more if they want. Where are you right now in your research in terms of uh, coming to conclusions? Are you still in the process of, of doing your analysis? I mean, the thing with me in, in, in horse racing is I'm, I'm, always, I'm always in the process until they put them into the gate. Um, so I'll, I'll put my bets in and I'll, uh, and then I'll immediately be racked with, uh, with second guessing and doubt. And I'll be watching them go into the gate and I'll say, ah, it's the five, the five is going to be the one that kills me here. One of the, uh, one of the unique things about covering the Derby for a media person is that you can literally bet on the race when you are an employee of any, you know, outlet that, uh, that's covering it. In fact, you know, I haven't covered, I've covered the Belmont uh, as a media person, I haven't for the Derby, but I am sure that there is a um, there's a betting window fairly close to wherever the media center is or wherever you'll be. Do you plan to place bets, Steve, at all during the day or at the beginning of the day and and seeing how it plays out? Yes, absolutely. Um, and I, I've got my uh, I've got a couple apps too, uh, legal. Uh, so so I've got uh, I, I'm I may not even have to make the walk over to the window. Although there is something. Um, I, I do kind of like it's it's getting almost old school to like actually go to the betting window and and, and uh, you know give the teller your bet you know yeah you're right I, I'm showing my age yeah that's that's true are you someone who uh, like do you have a did you grow up going to the track like are you someone like is this uh, I mean clearly I know you're a horse racing fan so my I don't want to presume but those who are horse racing fans probably have at least some time in their life or childhood have gone to the track and place place bets. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. No, this has been, um, uh, too many times to count. Um, my, I had an uncle, I think this is, this is true for a lot of people who get into it. You know, it's, it's a, you know, a parent, a relative, you know, um, who's really into it will take them, you know, when they're a kid and, and, you know, they, they discover they have the bug. And so, yeah, I have an uncle who's, um, very into it. And I, I think I was probably six years old and he took me to, uh, uh, they just, they just stopped racing there actually Scarborough Downs in Southern Maine. Hmm. And uh, it, was a, it was Trotters, and this is yeah, this was Trotters. late eighties. Yeah. yeah, well, this is late eighties when they don't have you know, there's no satellite rate. You know, you you go to the track and you can only bet the races that were being run at that track. And I remember, um, I mean, he still likes to tell the story because um, I obviously knew nothing about horses. I gave him five straight winners that night, and he didn't bet a single one of them. Um, and I was coming up to him after every race, saying, "Did you have this horse? Did you have this horse?" And, and he kept saying, "He was getting angrier and angrier." Um, so it was, it was honestly, I didn't, I actually didn't win any money that night, but I picked five straight winners and I haven't had a night as good in, in 30 plus years. <laughs> All right. I love it though. That, uh, that's where it started. All right. The final, uh, final two here. Um, you know, you know this, I mean, you, you work, um, for NBC news and you have now worked for NBC sports. And I think you're just obviously sort of intelligent enough to understand that sports networks, generally speaking, work very hard to stay away from anything political unless it intersects with the game or it intersects with something that involves the league. And then it really obviously depends on the ethos of your sports divisions department and how journalistically sound you are or not. Um, you, by the nature of your job, are looked at as someone who's in the political sphere. So I wonder just how conscious are you, if you are even conscious at all, that some viewers will sort of automatically wonder or question why Steve Kornacki is on a sports broadcast. Um, yeah, no, I mean, look, there's, there's, um, I, 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 um, I understand it. Um, if it's, and if it's, if it's out there, it, it, it's, it, it makes sense. I mean, I would just say, um, 
Um, I hope what they'll see is that, again, my, my fear, I, I come back to what I was telling you about how my one fear with the NFL thing was it doesn't look gimmicky. And I hope they'll see, I hope they give me a fair shake. And, and if they do, I hope they'll see that it's, that it's not a gimmick. Um, you know, again, it, with the NFL, um, it, it's something, you know, I, I, I know it the way the, the average viewer does. I know it as a fan. Um, same thing with, with the Derby. Um, I, you know, I've, I, I've got a fan tuning in who, you know, goes to the track a few times a year and, and, you know, is watching some of these prep races and has a few hunches on it. I mean, that's me. Um, although I may go more than a few times a year, but, but that's me. Um, and, and I hope that comes through. Um, it doesn't make me, you know, um, doesn't make me a great expert in terms of, you know, Hey, listen to me, I'm, I'm a brilliant tout here and I'm going to give you, you know, all these winners. Um, but it means I, I enjoy and I appreciate the sport, the tradition, uh, the pageantry just as much as the viewers do. Um, and I think, um, the way I was kind of describing there with the, um, you know, road to 270 and, and NFL playoff, uh, chase, uh, parallel. Um, I think there are a lot of sort of natural extensions of what I do, with, with data and politics that work for the NFL and will work for, you know, the Derby. All right, let's end on a fun one. I'm not going to ask you to pick a winner because I, I think that's ridiculously unfair a couple of days before the race starts. You got to get to uh, Churchill and sort of get a better sense of uh, what's going on, including like the last workouts. But I do want to ask you about Leslie Jones, who like really has made you, I think even more Steve of a, uh, popular culture figure watching her watch you uh and then her she'll sort of tweet it out or put it out there is really funny i mean um she has it sort of just pegged um what what, what i guess i would ask you so two things one the first time you saw her sort of profess her love for you what was your reaction and then secondly um you know she puts this out there and it becomes a little bit of a cultural play what's your reaction to that yeah, no. I mean, again, I I, I said uh, it, it would never on my radar that uh, that uh, I was going to get the opportunity with NBC Sports, and it was certainly never on my radar that uh, that the the uh, these Leslie Jones uh, videos were going to go out there. Um, yeah, I I um, it, it, I guess that that was sometime during. I, I usually call it election night, twenty twenty. I call it election week. Um, it was sometime during election week. She she started putting them up there. Um, I. It, there was a bit of a delayed reaction to me because I was um, not really paying close attention to social media, just trying to keep all the election uh, returns straight. But I started having, you know, friends and family send me these texts and saying, you got to watch this. You got to watch this. And I, I kind of put it aside. I didn't have time. And then sometime uh, late that week, I, I started watching it and said, holy cow, this is, this is almost surreal. This is not something I would have ever, uh, this, this is not someone I would have expected to know who I am, let alone have that kind of reaction to me. So I was, I was as amused, I think as, uh, amused and flattered. Uh, but uh, I was as amused as anybody else. Have you, have you, have you guys met in person? I'm guessing given the NBC connection, you probably have, right? Uh, no, never met in person. I sent her a note after just to oh, say nice. I thought it was very yeah, nice and, and kind of cool what she had done, but, uh, ne- never, no, I've never actually met in person. All right. Well, maybe we'll, we'll, we have that's something to look forward to when uh, when these, we, these these two people meet. Um, all right, Steve Kornacki, uh, his normal day job, NBC News and MSNBC national political correspondent, but he will be the insight analyst for NBC's coverage of the Kentucky Derby. Uh, you saw him last year. 
do NFL playoff probabilities in Football Night in America, uh, having covered sports television long enough to know, I, I will almost guarantee you that Steve Kornacki will be back, even if he can, even if he wants to be diplomatic and says that uh, they're still trying to figure that out. When when something is a good idea, television usually jumps on it. Uh, Steve, listen, I, I enjoy your work, and I wish you uh, nothing but continued success. Thanks uh, so much today for joining me on the Sports Media Podcast. Uh, thanks, Richard. Enjoyed talking to you. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. All right, as I said at the top, uh, Deshaun Reed is a staff writer for The Athletic who covers the Las Vegas Raiders, um, which means obviously we're colleagues at The Athletic. I think he has one of the most interesting jobs at the company because Las Vegas as a sports destination for pro teams is just fascinating to me, having been there a lot and trying to envision or imagine um, what the atmosphere is like for pro teams and obviously particularly for the NFL. So I'm very, very pleased to be joined by Sean Reed, nice enough to wake up early in the morning on the West Coast. Sean, how are you? Good, man. I woke up at like five something this morning. I must have been excited. Appreciate you having me on here. Yeah, that's 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 nice. It's raining here in uh, Toronto as we tape midday, but it's always it's always either rainy or cold here in in Toronto. Um, all right, so I want to just start with this a very broad um, question, and that is, and I know you haven't uh, covered the Raiders in Vegas for forever. But since you've started covering this team there, what is it like covering the NFL in Las Vegas? A very open-ended question for you to go wherever you want. Yeah, it's interesting because, um, you know, as you were saying, you know, Vegas the last few years has kind of become a sports city out of nowhere almost with the Golden Knights coming here and having instant, instant success as an expansion team, which you don't really see too often. Uh, the Las Vegas, Vegas Aces, of course, you know, they already existed elsewhere, but, you know, they were in the finals Um you know, not too long after moving here. And obviously the Raiders, one of the most historic franchises in the NFL, you know, in the span of, you know, less than five years, Vegas has become a, a legitimate sports city, which, you know, I don't know how many people saw coming. Uh, you know, it was a little bit tough to gauge it the first year, just because, you know, being in the era of the pandemic and not having fans at Allegiant Stadium, which is amazing to see, you know, every time you drive down by the strip, you know, it looks like a, a spaceship or something like that. And billion dollar, multi-billion dollar, you know, stadium with nobody in it, you know, it's so awkward on game days, especially, you know, with some of the crazy finishes they had there the first year. But even throughout all that, you still kind of feel that buzz of excitement in the city of, of what's to come. You know, obviously, you know, the Raiders, even they're a team that moves much more frequently than most teams in sports, uh, you know, there's a feeling that they're going to be here at least for a little while. And so, um, you know, Vegas is a, is an interesting city in the fact that, um, you know, you don't meet too many people that are born and raised in Vegas. You know, they do exist, but a lot of the people that live here, um, especially that have moved here in recent years with, you know, the, the city kind of evolving with the sports teams moving here are from California, which, you know, it's to the benefit of the Raiders, you know, given that, you know, they, they once played in L.A. And, and Oakland. And so there are a ton of fans that still live there in both of those cities that are Raiders fans. But now some of those people have started to actually move here and, and live here in Vegas. And so 
even though they may not be from Vegas, it's still almost like they have their hometown team in their new city, if that makes sense. And so it's a really interesting dynamic. And then, of course, you know, the Raiders are, are a global team. Um, you know, they have international fans and fans in almost every major city you seem like you would go to. Um, you know, you didn't get as much of that experience, you know, obviously with, with fans, you know, the Raiders were one of the teams that didn't allow fans at all this season. Um, owner Mark Davis really adamant about that. And so, um, but I'm sure, you know, in years to come, you know, maybe this year, even, you know, once we get back to having fans in stadiums, you're going to see a bunch of fans, uh, you know, from other cities coming in just, just for the games. And, you know, a lot of people come to Vegas anyway, you know, of course, with all the, you know, gambling and, and the nightlife and then everything that comes with the city. Um, but now they have an extra reason. You, know, you can come down, you can watch a Raiders game, you know, Aces game, Golden Knights game. You can go, go hit the strip right after. Um, I mean, the stadium is literally on the strip. So it's a really interesting dynamic. And I'm, I'm really excited to see how it plays out, you know, whenever the, the world gets back to normal. You have, you've, uh, you, before you took the Raiders gig, you, you, you have been a beat reporter elsewhere. How challenging is it or was it to come into a new city and to try to figure out how to um, make contacts, how to get sources, how to cover a new organization, which itself is in obviously a new place. Yeah, I mean, I you know I just graduated from Mizzou in 2018, um, and the Athletic hired me to cover Florida State football for them, and I had never been to the state of Florida in my life, and so that was you know kind of a shock experience for me, uh, having to adjust on the fly and. Uh, you know, figure out how to cover a pretty high level college football beat, even though the team wasn't good anymore. Um, but, you know, having to adjust a second time and then move to to Vegas, which was a city I had never been to either. Um, and obviously, you know, making that, that leap up from covering college football to covering the NFL is still football, but of course, it's a, an entirely different level. And then I had the added layer of, you know, like you said, the pandemic going on and uh, you know, when I found out that I was, you know, getting promoted to the Raiders beat uh, early last March, it was really around a time when when COVID was just kind of becoming a thing here in the United States. You know, like it, we had our first few cases. We didn't really know how this thing was going to go. You know, I, the, the, the draft was going to be in Vegas, you know, in April last year. So I was you know, trying to plan to move out out here, you know, to be in time, be here in time for that. Um, and then like a week later, you know, the NBA season halted, you know, sports shut down, March Madness gets canceled. And I'm like, OK, well, I'm, I'm probably not going to Vegas, <laughs> you know, as a plan. And so I that um, I was already in the process of moving out of Florida. Um, and so I luckily I have a sister that lives in Atlanta. That's only, you know, about five hours from where I was living in Florida. So I kind of just I had all my stuff in boxes and just kind of camped out at her house to wait to see what happened. Um, but unfortunately, I had some. Uh, you know, several family members that caught COVID pretty early on. Uh, my dad had it in March and my, my uncle had it and he, he actually passed away with it. Um, my grandma had it. And so thank you. But um, yeah, so I couldn't go back home to St. Louis. I, you know, I was going to go back home uh, to kind of crash with my dad before I finished to move out to Vegas. And but he had COVID. And so I was stuck in, in Atlanta, you know, and this was around draft time. So I actually covered my first NFL draft on the Raiders beat from Atlanta, Georgia. <laughs> so, you know, I was supposed to, you know, theoretically, you know, be in, be in Vegas, covering it in person. And instead I'm all, all the way on the other side of the country. And so uh, that made it, it was a really unique experience. Um, you know, it made it tough to navigate. Obviously I had never met anybody, you know, as far as, as, far as people being in the front office or, 
uh, players or anybody, you know, to kind of be sourced up going into the draft. You know, it was my first month on the beat. Um, luckily I had a partner, Vic Tafer, uh, who's been on the beat for a long time and, you know, well-connected and, and does a great job. And so he helped me out along the way and I kind of just had to take my warts. Um, but, you know, obviously the NFL calendar slows up a lot, you know, after the draft. And so I was able to figure things out. Eventually I got back home to St. Louis after my dad recovered and, uh, then made the 25 hour drive out from St. Louis to Vegas, which was a hell of a drive in the summer. Um, but eventually, you know, in June, I got settled out here and, um, you know, it was nice to have my feet on the ground. Uh, you know, of course we were in the heat of the pandemic at that point. So, you know, there, there were no off season, you know, workouts or, you know, any kind of thing to where I could kind of ingratiate myself with the team. And so really my first chance to interact with the Raiders was, was training camp, you know, about five months after I started the job. And, and even then it was all zoom calls. Um, and, you know, I, I was able to go to practices and I had to get tested every day, uh, COVID tests every day. And, but even then, you know, you're just, you're watching on, on the sideline for a segment of practice. You're not talking to any of the guys, you know, I, I've never shaken, you know, John Gruden's hand or Mike Gruden or, or uh, Mike Mayock's hand, you know, or, or, or even met like Mark Davis. And so as, as to this day, even after the season. So um, it's just weird, you know, sort of, even though I'm on the ground here in Vegas um, and a lot of media that covered the Raiders just stayed, you know, in the Bay area or, or kind of worked remotely, but I was one of the few that you know, actually lives here. And even with being here, it was almost like I was still covering the team remotely. Like, I don't think my experience would have been too different if I had just stayed put in Florida, you know, and covered the team from, from across the country. Um, you know, I got to go to the home games, of course, but, you know, even then you don't have the post-game locker rooms, you know, there's no fans there. I didn't go to every road game because of, of the circumstances. Uh, you know, it was all Zoom basically the entire year. And, and you know how Zooms are, you, you all get the same quotes. Nobody's really opening up. It's a little bit awkward because they're looking at a camera and not really looking at you all the time. And so um, I had to get really creative, you know, whether that came to, you know, working behind the scenes with agents or, you know, getting in, in touch with players with other ways uh, for exclusives or just doing my own independent research through, you know, statistical analysis or film review or, um, you know, things that, you know, most people may not think is a story, just jumping on it or, um, you know, even stepping outside the box and, and writing about things outside of the Raiders just to kind of give it, give myself a change of pace uh, sometimes. And so it was, a, it was an interesting first year on the beat. Um you know, I think it was probably one of the, the weirder, you know, initial years you could have covering the NFL. Um, but I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, the lessons that I learned from it, you know, kind of make things a little bit easier moving forward with my career. Well, a couple things there uh, before uh, sort of heading to some like beat stuff. Um, I can't even imagine what it would be like trying to uh, cover a professional sports team while my family was in the throes of dealing with COVID, um, you know, please go as sort of far as you are comfortable going. But I mean, just how emotionally challenging was that to, to try to do your job while, you know, members of your family are, are either hospitalized or suffering through this? Yeah, it was, you know, I mean, my, I, I was announced, um, you know, publicly that I was joining, you know, as, as a Raiders writer, April 1st, 2020. April 2nd, 2020, I wake up and I find out my uncle that died from COVID. And so almost immediately, it was just like you hit with a brick wall. But um, I'm the type of person just in general, um, 
I, I cope best with things by like continuing to stay active. And so, you know, if I, if I, you know, would have wanted to take some bereavement time or, or whatever it may be, um, you know, I could have, even though it was a busy month, but I just kept pushing through it, man. I had to, you know, I'm like, this is my first month on the beat. Like I, I can't not write during the draft. Um, you know, that was just kind of my mentality with it. You know, my dad still had it at that time and he got very, very, very sick at one point. And so it, you know, it, it pretty much, you know, work was kind of my escape from it because, you know, I didn't even have the, the normal things that people may have to do. Um, it's like I, I couldn't go anywhere, you know, because, you know, the pandemic was ongoing. We didn't really know what was going on. So I, I was basically in the house all day. And so the only other thing I could do is work. And so uh, I really just kind of lost myself in that. Um, you know, of course, when I stopped and had to kind of process things, you know, there were some pretty difficult nights and, and mornings, you know, before things kind of got started. But um, you know, it helped me not being alone, at least, you know, like I said, I was with my sister there in Atlanta and, and her husband and, and her kids. And so, uh, you know, kind of being surrounded by family, even though I couldn't be with my family that was, you know, dealing with COVID back in St. Louis, you know, at least I was able to find some strength in them. And then, you know, my coworkers were, were obviously very supportive as well. And, and my friends, you know, virtually. And so, um, you know, I had a pretty strong support system and I kind of just stayed busy. Um, you know, if I had been by myself, I'm sure I would have not dealt with it as well. And, um, if, if it had been a dead period in work, you know, maybe the off season, maybe I would have been a little bit more consumed by it, but I, I, I kind of found a good balance there. And, um, you know, eventually, you know, once, once things got into the summer, I was able to really, you know, and I got to go back home to St. Louis, I was able to really process it, you know, um, and kind of gather myself before I moved out here and, and, and kind of jumped into the beat work. You know, the um, the NFL is a challenging beat, sort of regardless of what is going on. Uh, COVID obviously presents some really unique challenges. And as we're talking now, I'm taping this one day before the opening round of the NFL draft. Obviously, the Raiders, Deshaun, are always a team of interest, just given they're a national team, not just a regional team. Um, what have you had to do to try to cover the draft when, you know, you, you can't cover it the way it has been covered before when people would go to the team facility, walk around, uh, you know, talk to members of the Raiders or talk to players, you know, even maybe someone like you might've gone to an NFL scouting combine in Indianapolis. None of that stuff can exist with COVID. So how have you tried to do your best to work around the obvious logistic issues? Yeah. I mean, the first thing I prioritized earlier this year, you know, really the only part of this scouting process that's gone on as normal has been the senior bowl. Um, and so I actually traveled down to, to Mobile, Alabama, um, you know, general manager, Mike Mayock and, and a few other Raiders staffers were down there. And so, um, you know, it was, it was a little, still a little bit awkward just because, you know, a lot of teams were quarantined and up in their hotels and they weren't mingling out at the bars at night, like they normally are. And at the practices, they weren't, you know, over on the media side talking to guys. So I still didn't get the full experience, but at least I was able to get something, you know, the kind of before the, the draft process really ramped up. Um, and then outside of that, you know, I think, you know, a lot of it just came down to when it, when it came to evaluating prospects, my own individual research and having recently covered college football, you know, in 2018 and in the 2019 seasons, you know, a lot of these guys coming out now, I'd either seen in person, you know, like Trevor Lawrence or, you know, obviously all the Florida State guys and you know, just familiar with a bunch of the players anyway, you know, from, from from my experience covering college football. So that helped me out a lot, but also 
you know, diving in, doubling down and doing my research so I can be for, more familiar with the lesser known guys. Um, as far as the team side, really the senior bowl was, was the only truly helpful piece of this. You know, I mean, I, you know, I've been able to make some relationships and talk to some guys, but you're only going to get, going to get so much, especially with a franchise like the Raiders. They're notoriously, uh, paranoid about everything. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, especially, like I said, not having the chance to meet anybody yet at this point, you know, being on the beat for over a year. You know, even if you you know have phone numbers and, and whatnot, guys are only going to open up to so much to somebody that's still, you know, in a practical sense, a stranger. Uh, and so uh, I've, I've done what I can, you know, obviously, you know, having Vic around, you know, he's going to be for a long time. Him and I together have been able to kind of tag team it and, and make the best of it. But uh, it's definitely been a challenge. Hopefully by next year, I can actually cover a normal draft cycle for once. And it's actually, you know, the draft next year is going to be in Vegas um, if all things go as planned. So that'd be like a, a good tie in for it to all come together finally when it's, when it's happening here. Yeah. It'd be exciting for you if that, uh, if that happens. Um, do you have a sense yet, uh, now living there as to what, uh, the Raiders can be in Las Vegas when we are knock on wood past this pandemic and there's no, um, restrictions on people who can go to games and the stadiums open. And I don't know what the capacity is. You probably do, but you know, there's in theory, 80, 90,000 people that like what, what, you know, Vegas is a weird city, interesting, fascinating city, but a weird city to Sean in that there's so many entertainment choices that it's always the interesting question as to, um, how can a professional sports team do with all these entertainment choices? Although I feel like, uh, the golden Knights have proven that if you got a good product in sports, like it could be one of the top attractions in the city. So how do you feel like sort of the Raiders will fit within that environment? Well, there is no doubt that they will have no issue selling out games here. Uh, I would be surprised if every home game, you know, at least the first year didn't sell out, um, you know, before, you know, last year, I know when things were kind of weird, when they made the decision to put tickets on sale before they, you know, teams were deciding what they were going to do with fans. I'm pretty sure the Raiders had like on average the most expensive ticket in the league um, just because there was so much demand. Obviously they had a loaded schedule and a bunch of primetime games last season, but even this season that, uh, you know, I, I expected the man will be high, not just locally, but you know, like I said, this is a, a, a four hour drive from LA where they have a huge fan base. Uh, you know, it's a quick, maybe hour flight, maybe a little bit longer uh, from the Bay area, um, you know, in Oakland, you know, where they're from. And so uh, their fans will be here. And then, like I said, you know, even fans of opposing teams that'll make that trip just to check out the new stadium. Um, you know, I, I, I don't see them having any issues when it comes to getting people in the building, um, you know, knock on wood, if, if, if they're able to have full capacity, um, you know, like I know Roger Goodell came out and said that he expects that to be the case. You know, I mean, we'll see how things go here in the next, next few months, whether that's a realistic possibility. But um, I know the owner, Mark Davis, he's been really adamant about, um, he doesn't want to let fans in until the to the place can be packed to the brim. And so if it's a situation where it's 50, 50, they may, they may just not do fans again, but, you know, looking ahead, it, it seems like it's pretty likely. And so, um, you know, I, I don't, I think that building's going to be rocking when it comes to this season. I, I really don't think they'll, they'll struggle at all. All right. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll play this back a week from now, Sean, to see how good you did. But, <laughs> uh, what, where do you think the Raiders go? I'm not going to make you like, uh, uh, nail the pick because that's insanity. You know, the only the only person I'd ask was like the Jaguars beat writer. Right. Pretty obvious. But where do you think uh, 
where do you think the Raiders ultimately go in this draft? And obviously, you know, when it comes to the Raiders and drafting, it's just always interesting given that Mayock is the GM. And for, you know, a decade plus, Mayock was the most prominent television draft analyst we had out there. Yeah. I mean, Gruden is making the picks. We'll, we'll be clear about that. Um, John, John Gruden <laughs> is running the show here. Uh, not to say that Mike Mayock doesn't have any input. He does. But uh, yeah, it's, it's Gruden's show. Um, but you know, looking at their roster, they have two glaring needs, uh, right tackle and free safety. Um, and and my, my vibe is, you know, at, at the 17th overall pick, so it's almost right in the middle of the first round. Um, you know, I, I think they go offensive tackle in the first round. Uh, my guy would be Tevin Jenkins um, from Oklahoma State, but uh, Christian Derisaw from, from Virginia Tech is another guy who's, who's in that range. He'll probably be available. Um, you know, I think when it comes down to it, uh, it's, it's an interesting dynamic because offensive tackle is a much deeper position in this draft than safety, but I think offensive tackle is a much more valuable position than safety. Um, and given their alternative options on the roster, they really, really, really need an offensive tackle right now. And so I, I think that's where they ultimately go with the 17th overall pick. There is a chance they could trade back um, from that spot if they think a guy that they like will be available later. But wherever they pick in the first round, I'm, I'm pretty sure it'll be an offensive tackle and and my gut is telling me it'll be a guy like Tevin Jenkins. That's interesting. Okay, so if a if a skill position player of note drops unexpectedly, you still think the Raiders stay away? And because I mean, at least in the old days, the Al Davis old days, you know, those were the kind of guys who like would seemingly end up on the Raiders because of a guy, you know, Al Davis's obsession with speed, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, like the the guys that could fall in that range are all at positions where it's like it just really wouldn't make sense for them. Like last year, they took Henry Ruggs, 12th overall, and they also also drafted a receiver in the top 100. Um, so if it's, let's say, Devontae Smith or, or, or Jalen Waddle or something like that falls to 17, like does it really make sense to, to take them there? And then at linebacker, they gave Corey Littleton and Nick Kwiatkowski like $30 million or more guaranteed last offseason. Um, they just brought back another one of their linebackers. So with drafting Micah Parsons at 17 makes sense. Um, and then the cornerback, they just drafted Damon Arnett 19th overall last year, which was a surprise. They drafted another cornerback last year. And then in, a couple of years ago, they drafted Trayvon Mullen. So all those positions, it's like you're already pretty invested when it comes to the draft capital you spent on young guys at, the, at those positions or free agency dollars that you spent. And so they could still do it because it's the Raiders, of course. But I just don't think given how glaring because those those needs at offensive tackle and free safety, it's not like they have a guy saying, like, oh, he, you know, he could do it for the, it's like, no, you need somebody now. And so. I just don't think that they do it this year. If they were like in a, in a top 10 range, you know, like they had a 10th overall pick, I think it'd be, um, you know, more of a, a conversation just because of the, the, the talent gap at that level. But all the way back at 17, I, I just don't see it coming together. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. All right, here's where I want to finish up with. Um, we're taping this... Uh, one day we're taping you know, near the end of April, and on April twentieth, um, you wrote a piece uh, in the Athletic 
about Raiders owner Mark Davis and how he failed miserably with his I can breathe Twitter statement. Um, I, I was really just impressed, one, by just how quickly you turn that piece around. And obviously, it's a very tricky piece of writing given the seriousness of that um, that subject and what was going on, obviously, in the country given uh, the trial for the killing of George Floyd. You got Mark Davis um, on the phone, uh, which is always interesting to me when you get an owner on the phone. And I wonder if you could just sort of um, inform my audience just what that sort of experience was like, because you turned around what I thought was a really, really good piece, um, again, on a subject that was not easy terrain to, to deal with. Yeah, so that that was interesting how that came together. Um, you know, after I saw the tweet, I figured it was going to get taken down, but like 30 minutes later, it was still up. And so I sent it to, um, I'll just say somebody in the Raiders organization that I've ha- I have had the chance to meet and have a good, pretty good relationship with. And I was like, I, I mean, have you guys seen this? You know, is it like, do you know what the reacts at that point? You know, people just ripping it to shreds on Twitter. Um uh, you know, and, and they mentioned Mark Davis. I'm like, oh, okay, that makes more sense why it's still up, you know, because if, if it was just a social media intern, it's coming down, right? Um, but for it to still be up at this point, it's like, all right, that's that's from the top down. And so I had already, I had, had conversations with Mark Davis before because he recently purchased the Las Vegas Aces, uh, the WNBA team here. And I was going to do a story on that uh, just because, you know, it's really uh, rare, I would say, for an NFL owner to, to buy into a WNBA yeah. team. Great team, too. The yeah. Aces. Great talent. Yeah. And yeah. so um, he knew who I was, but I hadn't, hadn't talked to him on the phone before. And so I sent him a text, you know, after, you know, I kind of gathered the information and he just called me. <laughs> like it wasn't a, <laughs> wasn't I'll call you right back, you know, anything like that. And so um, I was a little flustered just because I, I didn't expect it. But then I kind of just jumped into, because he, he didn't understand why the reaction was what it was. And, you know, myself, uh, not just being a black man in America, but, uh, you know, as I mentioned, I'm from St. Louis, but more specifically, I'm from the neighborhood of Ferguson. And so um, back in 2014, um, when I was 18 years old, about to go to college, that's when the, the killing of Michael Brown happened in Ferguson. And, um, you know, that was some, you know, I, I, you know, briefly, we, didn't, we didn't know each other necessarily, but I went to the same high school as him for a stretch. Um, and just kind of seeing, you know, everything that stemmed from that, both in the city and nationally, you know, I was very intimately connected to this Black Lives Matter movement that we've seen continue on today with, you know, other killings that have happened since then. And then another one that happened that year was the killing of Eric Garner up in New York. And so I remembered you know, immediately when I saw that tweet, you know, I can breathe, you know, the the NYPD supporters that were wearing the, the I can breathe shirts kind of mocking the last words of Garner, which was, you know, I can't breathe. And so I told Davis about that and he had no idea about it. And I could genuinely tell just by the way his voice and his reaction that he didn't know. And so, um, you know, I, I think he understood the backlash at that point, but he was still a little bit, you know, defensive about it just because, you know, he, he saw that George Floyd's brother had, had made that statement. He was kind of paraphrasing him. He's like, well, if the family said it, why can't I say it? Um, and so he didn't really end up apologizing. He was very adamant that he, like, he wasn't apologizing. Um, you know, he said he, you know, he felt bad if he offended the family. Um, but, you know, it was essentially a statement of like, I'm not taking a tweet down. I'm not apologizing. Like if people are mad, so be it. But like, I'm just, I'm on the family side. They're good with it. I'm good with it. Um, and so that's when I, I kind of put my calm together um, because, 
you know, I, I don't think, you know, I, when I saw the tweet, even I didn't think that it was, uh, you know, trying to make the statement that they were, you know, against the verdict of Derek Chauvin being guilty uh, just because I knew Mark Davis's history of, uh, you know, being supportive of the Black Lives Matter movement and, and doing some some initiatives to try to support the black community. Um, and so I knew his heart and his head were probably in the right place. He just executed it terribly. Um, and my issue you know, when you, you know, everybody makes mistakes, but after executing terribly for you to kind of double down on it, that's where, you know, my issue comes in. And so uh, just in my column, I tried to illustrate that first, you know, given background to people who, who may not know, like Mark Davis, um, you know, the context of the I can breathe statement, um, you know, acknowledging that Mark Davis has been supportive of the Black Lives Matter movement in the past, but then also, you know, expressing that, you know, even if you want to be an ally, if you do it in the wrong way, that's still harmful or can be harmful or offensive to people, even if it's not offensive to the George Floyd family. You know, uh, his brother put out a statement the next day saying he was fine with the statement. It's still an issue uh, because, you know, somebody with the power of an NFL owner, you know, really being thoroughly supportive and backing the Black Lives Matter movement and being an ally for black people can have a lot of impact. And so it really, you know, when there's that kind of opportunity, it means a lot to me that that person gets it done the right way. And so, you know, I got a lot of backlash, you know, people saying I was trying to, you know, shit on the Raiders and, you know, attacking Mark Davis. And it's like, no, I want him to get better because I know, you know, the potential impact he can have if he does. And so that was kind of my larger hope for the column is, you know, hopefully, you know, Mark Davis learns the lessons from this and not just him, but like other people, because he's not the only person that's made that kind of a mistake. I think there was another team that day that, that also tweeted out something weird. And so just in general, for people that do, you know, care for this kind of struggle for social justice and, and racial justice and um, want to be allies that they can be, you know, uh, you know do as well of a job as, as possible, you know, in that role. And so not to say that my column is going to do that single handedly, but hopefully it's just, just an instance that helps more people moving forward. Um, uh, the last one on this, uh, Deshaun, is I'm curious, did, did, um, did Mark Davis or someone on behalf of Mark Davis offer you what they thought of the piece you wrote? Um, yeah, I had some people, uh, kind of from the organization reach out to me, um, you know, uh, expressing positive sentiment sentiments about the piece. And so, um, you know, even like at the end of the conversation, cause we weren't arguing, but we were kind of going back and forth on it. Um, but at the end he's like, Hey, we, we still need to do that ACES story, huh? And so <laughs> I don't think there is any, uh, hard feelings, I would say. Um, I don't think he's, he's thin skinned like that to where it would, it would ruin the relationship or anything. Yeah. That's an interesting, that's just an interesting, um, interaction with an owner. Um, and yeah, they, it, I mean, again, I don't know Mark Davis, but he does not strike me as an owner who somehow then would like never talk to you again. I he may believe what he believes. I, I think clearly you, you, you stated your case very well and smartly uh, on the athletic, but it, it does strike me. He does strike me as someone who sort of, you know, would, would indeed still cooperate you cooperate with you for the, the ACES piece. But I guess, um, but I guess we'll see the last one that I have, uh, we'll just, we'll keep it on uh, the fields here. What do you expect from the Raiders this year? Um, I mean, as it stands, it's not too much different from what they looked like last year. Um, you know, which was an eight and eighteen that missed the playoffs. You know, if if they really they really have to kill it in a draft, I think to to break through and become a playoff team um, this year. I mean, some of the moves that they made this offseason, 
uh, trading away Trent Brown was was expected given his injury issues last year. But, you know, they even trade away, you know, some some guys that have been, you know, centerpiece of that offensive line and Rodney Hudson, one of the best centers in the league and Gabe Jackson and they lost Nelson Aguilar. And so, um, you know, they haven't made a lot of additions on defense. Their defense was gave up the most points in franchise history last year. And their only major addition so far has been signing uh, edge rusher Yannick, Yannick Ngakwe. And so, uh, you know, gotten a little bit worse or maybe a good amount worse on offense and maybe a little bit better on defense, which equals out to being about the same to me. So I think unless they really kill it in the draft, they'll probably be, well, I guess in, the, in this era of 17 games, you know, the records are kind of weird now, but I guess a nine and eight team or maybe a, a seven and 10 team, I guess, you know, I guess 500 is out the window now. Uh, but you know, they really have to nail this draft and maybe get some surprise contributions from elsewhere to to break through and to be in a playoff team. I don't think it's completely off the table just because they were close last year. They did start six and three. They were one of the, the few teams that beat the Chiefs last year and they com- they were competitive with them in the second game. And so it's there like like it's not. And, you know, I think John Gruden, uh, while some of his personnel decisions are questionable, you know, as, as far as football, you know, he's, he's a talented coach when it comes to putting together an offensive scheme and we'll see what, what new defensive coordinator Gus Bradley can do. And so it, it, it's possible, but they really have to nail it this week with the draft in order for it to come to fruition. Yeah. They're, uh, I mean, every NFL team in sort of its own way is interesting, but they're, they're particularly interesting to me uh, just given their move and, and given who obviously the coach and the, the general manager, uh, general manager is uh, Tashawn Reed, is the Las Vegas Raiders beat writer for the Athletic. Uh, check his workout on the Athletic. If you want to follow him on Twitter, it's at T A S H A N R E E D. So at his full name, and um, and continue uh, continue to follow his work. Tashawn, I appreciate you coming on today on um, on fairly short notice. I know it's a very busy week for you but the Raiders just to me are a really interesting team and you have a very interesting job at the Athletic just given that city uh, you know, being a young guy in that city is probably something you'll look back on years later and be feel very fortunate that you were able to uh, to experience but uh, continued success man and thanks very much for coming on today on the Sports Media Podcast No problem Richard, thank you for having me Alright back in the studio my thanks to Steve Kornacki and to Sean Reed for coming on and providing their insights. Uh, I, I enjoyed that. That was, a, that was a fun show to do. If you like these kind of conversations, head to the Sports Media with Richard Dyche archive page. Um, check stuff out. Uh, please leave us a uh, five-star review and a nice note if you like this stuff. Prior to today's episode, we had ESPN's David Purdom on sports gambling and Grant Wall on the collapse of the Super League and MLS Meteorites. Before that, a roundtable media discussion with Jimmy Train of Sports Illustrated chad finn of the boston globe and then before that paul Heyman going behind the scenes on wrestlemania and the wwe and the one before that nfl network reporter stacy dales and espn mlb reporter marley rivera on uh their careers and journeys and what they're covering this year i want to thank patrick antonetti of course for producing this podcast thanks to everybody at cadence 13 and of course thank you for listening never take that for granted always appreciate it And we will see you soon on the Sports Media with Richard Deitch Podcast.